Today, we continue to crash the year that was 1986. Marvel Comics launches the new universe, or do they? And in the meantime, DC Comics answers with three of the biggest titans in the comic book creative space who each take a, uh, a big giant swing at the big three DC icons, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, get significant facelifts over the course of 1986 and in the world of film and cinema, America goes crazy for an Australian outback adventurer known only as Crocodile Dundee. It is quite a year. There is so much going on and we look at all of it through the lens of Rob's observations. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another installment of Rob's observations. We uh, talk about comics and movies and streaming and all of the ways that all the comic books that I grew up with, all the superheroes that I loved and I idolized have just become part of the like infrastructure of pop, pop culture. I mean, they are the bedrock of what is going on right now. I mean, I actually today read uh, an article that, that was a link to, to this entire discussion on Reddit about are there too many Marvel shows and movies, and that's not what I'm here to debate today. I'm just telling you that's that's a headline, because because they're saying like there's too much, there's too much. So, so again, as I always remind you, grew up in the 70s. 1974 is when I was seven years old, encountered my first Marvel comic magic. It 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 completely cast its spell on me. I was taken up by it, taken in, uh, just became an avid comic book enthusiast. And it became my career for the last 37 years. I write them, I draw them, I publish them. I have, uh, I, I, I co-founded Image Comics, uh, created all sorts of great characters, Cable, Deadpool, Domino, X-Force, Youngblood, Brigade, Prophet. And for the last three years, I talk about comics and pop culture and all the ways these characters are affecting our lives. And I come at it from a perspective of, wait a second, th- 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 this stuff used to be like the, the, dom- the dominion of nerds used to not be welcome, you know, for everyone. It wasn't for all mankind. <laughs> and now comic books are for all mankind, for sure. Uh, we are in the middle of our new series, Decades, the Decades series. We're going to take a year, a specific year out of several of the past decades, and we're going to examine the impact of that specific year because there are certain years, catalysts, that really shifted power, shifted tastes, shifted the direction of the comic book industry, and and even pop culture entirely. So today we are doing the second part of our deep dive into the year that is 1986. In part one, we set the table. We talked about, again, how powerful uh, years like this are. The reason 1986 was the great tipping off point for this series was when I saw Top Gun 2, you know, and, and like many of you have seen it many times now, Love it. Good God. What a perfect three-act structure film with the proper character investments, emotional payoff, super high stakes, incredible cinematography, aerial action footage, just just an incredible movie. I, I, I am so thrilled that this film exists. But again, it doesn't exist if the original doesn't come out 
and completely dominate the landscape in 1986. And it's made me think because of all the tropes that the sequel revisits that maybe Top Gun is actually like the perfect pop culture film, the original. The original didn't have a giant opening, but it hung around. And as we discussed in our first episode, it dominated the entire month of May in 1986. And then all the other movies came out during the summer. And then in September, it was number one for every weekend in September. And 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 so a movie that, that opened in the spring came back to dominate cinemas. It never left the movie houses. It dominated theaters all throughout the fall of 1986 as well. It finished the year being the number one movie. Now, that's not just... That's not the only reason to do this series. Stranger Things Season 4, which was really anticipated. We we all are huge Stranger Things fans. I, I've been surprised in the last couple of days. People who I did not think were Stranger Things fans were like, no, I watched the whole... I watched all seven episodes so far. It really is uh, a, a, a massive uniter in, in regards to 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 uh, aligning multiple generations of fandom. Uh, we got into it because my daughter, who was twelve when it when it aired, and now she's eighteen. She watches it with us. I mean, six years of Stranger Things, uh, almost seven years, literally. You know, from from debut to to, to season four. But season four is March nineteen eighty six. So the, the the fourth season is March 1986, and that made me go, whoa. And then we, we've covered that one of the seminal, most uh, really transformational, and, and not in like the cheap, this word gets passes around, gets passed around too much way. It's not. It's like the real, like, like this, this comic is why we talk about transformational comic books. The uh, I've done dedicated episodes on Batman, The Dark Knight, DC's addiction to the Dark Knight, um, how the Batman comic, and, and, and the great thing was I was able to access sales throughout the 70s and the 80s, and I think it's uh, there's a couple of series that I did you know, earlier, uh, late last fall, maybe earlier this winter about, they're called The Numbers. I think if you, if you go through the podcast and you look at the uh, episodes called The Numbers, is where I've got all the data in front of me. I read it to you from 84, from 80, from 82, from 79, from 78, and I share with you guys what was selling back in these periods. And it, it'll show that over a you know 20-year period from the Adam West Batman uh, show, that's when the Batman comic book peaked in sales, and then it was dropping ever since. And prior to The Dark Knight, this, this transformational work, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which launches in March of 1986. Prior to that, Batman is is drastically losing sales. I mean, di- dipping to, to almost below 100,000 units. Uh, DC had really scaled back. At one point, Batman had five titles. At the point the Dark Knight was coming, he had two. Uh, Batman himself had not been the box office draw for comic books that he that he used to be, and and uh, so many of his titles had been you know diminishing. Really, from the from the point of the Richard Donner, uh, Christopher Reeve Superman film, Superman became the real showcase for DC Comics, and and he hung on through the mid '80s. Uh, you know, e- even as DC turned to, to team books, because those were the ones that were selling so much. Whether it was the Legion of Superheroes, which we've talked about several times, uh, I think that that we really discuss the Legion of Superheroes into how to crash a franchise. That's the name of the episode. We've talked about the Teen Titans, the Justice League. Uh, they, they they put Batman in, a te- in another team book aside from the Justice League 
to kind of preserve his popularity, and that was called Batman and the Outsiders. So Batman had been losing sales. Um, we had that. We have all the sales data that we cover in the episodes called the numbers, and I love love bringing those episodes to you because you, you just cannot outrun the facts of the circulation numbers that were going on, and it shows you how many um, you know uh, uh, sales that the comic was dropping. And for one last time, I say that, but it won't be. Stephen King, yes, the the incredible horror maestro, in 1987 wrote a long uh, piece for one of the de- the detective comics or Batman uh, anniversary issues. I don't want to say the wrong number, but I've covered it extensively. He wrote a really long um, kind of commemorative piece where he even said, like, he knew himself as a Batman fan that he felt Batman was about to go to the, the way of kind of fallen icons of the past, like the Phantom and the Shadow and Doc Savage and uh, and, and Turok and Magnus the Robot Hunter, uh, uh, Robot Fighter, because he just he just could sense that Batman was was losing his appeal, and then and then Frank Miller does this Dark Knight, and the cover to Dark Knight number one is up for auction. It is currently at a million dollars, and it is climbing. And that auction will conclude next weekend uh there's all manner of debate is it two million is it five million is it higher is it lower we're all going to find out but that's a 1986 item huge piece of artwork it could break records for a piece of comic book original art so 1986 is uniting so much of these different elements that it was worth a deep dive part one like i said we start we take you to the year we start at june what's going on in comic books is that the most important a uh, single most important comic creator, and that is what the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics called him, not just Rob Liefeld, uh, John Byrne, who had produced literally thousands of pages of best-selling comic book material for Marvel over an 11-, 12-year period from like 1975 to 1986 when he retires. He had done the Hulk, Captain America, Fantastic Four, Marvel 2-in-1, Marvel Team-Up, Spider-Man. His quintessential uh, bodies of work were the Avengers and... The X-Men was his crowning achievement, taking the X-Men monthly and creating such amazing uh, storylines as Dark Phoenix, The Hellfire Club, uh, Days of Future Past, just, you know, Magneto, The Savage Land, all of these amazing Proteus, just crazy adventures. Some of the best storytelling, most beautiful, brilliant, gorgeous pages of art you're ever going to see it transformed an entire generation it inspired guys like todd mcfarland like jim lee like myself eric larson to get into the business and to pursue comic books john byrne was leaving marvel this seemed inconceivable because he was synonymous with marvel because he had you know been through so many of the different comics marvel team up was a good year year and a half a spider-man you know coupled with other random marvel heroes marvel Two and one, he did The Thing alongside, who was from the Fantastic Four. He had two stints on the Fantastic Four, a five-year stint that he wrote and drew himself. And prior to that, about a year with uh, various writers. One of them was Marv Wolfman, who would go on to do the Teen Titans over at DC Comics. The Avengers, he was on, on and off on that book over a matter of years. Truly memorable, uh, very, very iconic storylines and images that he contributed. But again, the X-Men is the crown jewel. Captain America is a run that I uh, did an entire segment on a few weeks back called The Greatest Run You've Never Heard Of because he didn't. He was there just shy of a year. Captain America was just 
picking up all sorts of crazy steam and popularity, and he really was doing a tra- another, like again, transformative storyline. And then he left over um, editorial disputes, and, and you could read about it or listen to it in that podcast. I actually read directly from several of the uh, players that were involved, the editor, the writer, John himself. But John was seminal in, re- in regards to like his input and association with Marvel Comics. So him leaving is a big deal. And we cover an entire episode of him going and doing Superman. So we're not going to do that here. But him doing Superman was exciting. We all knew that he had a big Jones for Superman because he had a art book, The Art of John Byrne, that was advertised in all the, all the Marvel comics. The publisher of The Art of uh, John Byrne, Sal Q Productions, took out all these major ads in 1980, telling you that The Art of John Byrne, who was, again, one of the, if not the most popular artist in comics at the time, and he'll tell you so, in that interview, in The Art of John Byrne, John Byrne tells you, I'm one of the most popular you know, artists, creators in comics. He was aware. He was aware of his popularity. He'll tell you how in the interview in The Art of John Byrne, how his his applause on stage was bigger than even Neil Adams. How could that be? Okay. He was very aware of his place in the culture after just five years. reason I'm telling you about this Art of John Byrne book, the thing that fans like myself, when we got The Art of John Byrne, and having only really experienced John's work on at Marvel or at Charlton. And when I say, again, uh, a really important guy at, at, at Marvel, I mean, uh, we're talking like, you know, if he was a director, like, you know, he was the Spielberg of, of Marvel Comics, you know. It, it, he was just a big, giant, bright, shining star. Frank Miller was like the Martin Scorsese, Okay. Uh, I mean, it, I, I, these guys definitely have kind of echoes. Scorsese with his street-level kind of um, drugs, gangs, guns. That's Frank Miller. Spielberg had more of the wow pop factor, and that's what Byrne brought to everything. But in this art of John Byrne, we had so much. We had just seen so much Marvel stuff. Lo and behold, the art of John Byrne has tons of Superman shots. It's Clark Kent pulling his shirt out to show the Superman logo. It's Lois Lane. You know, in in the foreground, waving goodbye to Clark, who's tipping his hat in the background. It's Superman flying through the cosmos. It's Superman flying through the air. It's close-ups of Superman and, and Lois Lane, and and uh, it's fantastic. It's when it's when you you caught a vision of wow, what if John Byrne was working for DC Comics, doing their biggest, most important character? Well, so that happens. 1986. We ended in June in the last podcast as that first full-length interview with John, you know, kind of teasing that he was coming to Superman and some of it, what his work was being shown, that hit the stands. And that, in the most important kind of professional magazine covering the comic book industry, Amazing Heroes, brought you his first interview. And, uh, and that hit, actually, on June 1st. Amazing Heroes number 96, issue 96, hit on June 1st, 1986, to give you the 411 on Burn being at DC Comics. I remember I had this magazine I brought into my friend's house. He was playing football for the local college. He's like, dude, what's with you in comics, man? You're always in the comics. And I said, hey, man, like, this is the most important guy at Marvel, and he's now coming to do Superman. And by telling him this, he's like, and, and that stuff matters? And I'm like, yes. Yes, it matters a great deal. It matters to a lot of people. So this Amazing Heroes has a very kind of personal memory to it. 
also during June of 1986. You know, we are getting close to wrapping up the the Dark Knight saga, okay? We are getting close to putting, uh, you know, the third act is 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 dawning on on Frank Miller's saga, and 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 the Dark Knight Four is coming. I worked retail at the time, and there had become a lag after issues one and two jumped out really quickly. There was a lag from two to three, and then a lag. And when I say a lag, like like six to seven weeks instead of four weeks. And you know, we as comic book fans, we feel that. We always feel it. And the store that I was working at in Tustin, California, the phone would ring off the hook. You know, hey, you know, Comics Tunes. And uh, is the new Dark Knight in yet? Hey, is the new Dark Knight in yet? Hey, is, is, is the new Miller Dark Knight ship? And, and we'd be like, well, it, 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 it's coming out in three weeks. It's coming out in four weeks. It's coming out in five weeks. There was a lot of anticipation. That was a super important book. And so at, 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 the, uh, at the same time, a book called Alan Moore's, a, a book called Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons was launching. And we go in depth on several episodes of on the kind of the curation of, of everything that went into uh, Watchmen. It was originally going to be about these uh, heroes from Charlton Comics that DC bought. And that's what Alan um, prepared for. And, and I, I don't know if it's available anymore. I'm looking at it on my shelf right now. And, and, and DC does these giant oversized hardcovers called Absolute Editions. They're bigger than like omnibuses. And they fit in slipcovers. And they're called Absolute Editions. And uh, I got my Absolute Edition, I think, the year. I think, I think they put it out the year before the Zack Snyder Watchmen film. And I made sure and grabbed it. And there's a lot of really key uh, material that I had seen for the first time. Alan Moore's notes, Dave Gibbons' notes, sketches, breakdowns, thoughts, um, just kind of really detailing all that went into putting together Watchmen. And, and when DC said, hey, we've decided not to allow you to use these characters, Blue Beetle, Captain Adam, the question, uh, and 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 we, 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 we want to do this story, but you've got to create your own characters. And so Alan did. And that's where we got, you know, Owlman and Rorschach and... Uh, you know, Professor Dr. Manhattan. And so Watchmen starts rolling out and it's this big, exciting follow-up to all the work that Alan Moore has been doing on Swamp Thing. We've never done an entire episode on Swamp Thing, but that is part of like the 1983, 1984 kind of really uh, uh, the, the first of the turns of the transformations of everything that's going on at DC following what, what the Teen Titans represented as kind of this alternate book to the X-Men. And just so you know, in an in, in, in interview that George Perez gave that I read recently on an interview where we talk about influences, and it, it's, it's more in the secret history episode. What I didn't read, I omitted, was, was George Perez saying that when one guy goes, what, what do you think is responsible for the Titan success? And George says, the X-Men. The X-Men are, are responsible for the Titan success. Without the X-Men, people aren't looking for another companion book, and we gave it to them in the Titans. And, and did they ever? The book was super successful. Swamp Thing while not being as commercially successful, really got the buzz going. Alan Moore revealed all these amazing different aspects of Swamp Thing that no one had ever even considered before. You know, even the the, the Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson classics were suddenly being eclipsed by the work that Alan Moore, John Toddleman, and Steve Bissett were doing on Swamp Thing. So, so this was a highly anticipated. He, he had done Miracle Man, originally Marvel Man, 
which was a really hardcore R-rated, very adult mature take on the Shazam, Captain Marvel, Billy Batson dynamic. It, it is, it's, and 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 it's far superior, in my opinion, than anything that was ever done with the Billy Batson, Shazam, Captain Marvel uh, uh, dynamic. Alan was really known for these adult themes, adult turns, and Watchmen was to be his showcase. Now, one thing I need to pivot on is the month before John Byrne arrives on Man of Steel, that June is when DC releases uh, two very important comic books because Alan Moore wrote them and knowing that this they were saying goodbye to an era of uh, Superman because John Byrne was going to radically change everything that we had known. He was going to change Krypton. He was going to change the, 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 the backstory of, 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 of Superman, of Kal-El. He was going to do all these major tweaks and everyone was looking forward to it. Everyone figured Superman was due a facelift. Even though he'd been super popular, you know, this is what John Byrne wanted to do and if John Byrne wanted to do it, he'd more than earned his right and if he wanted to change it, it's fine. At this point, we're three years out of the Richard Pryor Superman 3 movie, which kind of didn't leave a great taste in people's mouth. I, w- I know I was there at the time. It was a giant fall from the affection that we had for Superman 1 and 2. So Superman was deserving of a facelift at this time, even though he had been incredibly popular. Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, Part 1, uh, is is a story that Alan Moore wrote, which details the historic kind of... Uh, legacy of this version of Superman and it goes through his life, his loves, the people who died, uh, fates of different villains, uh, what happened in the future and and did Superman himself live in this story and, and, and you've got this giant author and it's drawn by Kurt Swan who was a long-standing legendary, he's like to Superman what Jack Kirby is to the Fantastic Four and they got George Perez to come on and ink the first chapter, and George gave this incredibly crisp, modern line. It was akin to Terry Austin, you know, inking George, because, I mean, Kurt Swan, because that's the inker that George wanted to emulate the most, and so he applied that same sort of line work and that same sort of modern dynamic, and it is the most stunning, gorgeous, beautiful Kurt Swan job, largely because uh, of the crisp, really crisp, modern line that George puts on top of him without ever losing Kurt. The entire thing looks ridiculously just like the most refined, beautiful Kurt Swan, but it's a really resonant story and it bounced from Superman then to Action Comics. The Action Comics chapter, George was not able to eat that, uh, to ink. He was not able to eat. He was not able to ink it and uh, that fell to another longtime Superman DC collaborator named Kurt Schaffenberger who applied the inks. Nonetheless, the two-part story by Alan Moore really was a haunting... You could not have ended an era in a more haunting fashion. It was like, wow. You got the feeling that you were really reading this sweeping epic kind of that shows you how this Superman's life played out, his relationships, his friendships, his loves... So it was really brilliant. It was really beautiful. And so Alan Moore is really strutting because fandom was a buzz. Fandom, as much as they were looking forward to Man of Steel, which was the miniseries, six-part miniseries. You get multiple bites at the apple because when John Byrne finally does this, he's going to do action. He's going to do Superman and then he's going to do action comics, okay? And then they're going to do another book called The Adventures of Superman. They're going to shift all the numberings. But 
prior to that, you're going to get a six-part brand new miniseries called Man of Steel. So you got Man of Steel number one. And you guys, that hit in July. July of 1986 was the big deal because it gave us Man of Steel. And, and there was press. John Byrne is on the Today Show. John Byrne is, on the, is, is, is talking to newspapers. Man of Steel number one hit, uh, you know, and 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 there was there was no looking back. This was ridiculously, uh, ridiculously exciting, because uh, because really nobody saw it coming. I mean, Man of Steel got all the buzz. Like I said, I, I mean, I'm talking L.A. Times, I'm talking New York Times. Again, when you see John Byrne, your favorite artist of the last 12, 13 years, seated across from you know Jane Pauley. Uh, be, being asked or, or whoever interviewed him on the Today Show and uh, could have been Katie Couric and uh, asking him about Superman. And he's a little awkward, and but he knows it's a big moment. Time Magazine, uh, John Byrne did the cover to that because the anniversary for Superman was coming up as well. You want to talk some big, and this is again before the internet, before social media, you guys, newspapers and television drove so much, drove everything. And, and Man of Steel was a huge showcase. It's July, July 10th of 1986 that Man of Steel came. I worked the comic store. We got the two variant comics. People came in all day long looking to gobble that comic up. So with John Byrne on Superman and Frank Miller on Batman, doing this seminal Batman, DC, and, I, and I'm going to tell you, I worked retail. D, DC had really shifted the narrative and they had become for the most organic in the most organic fashion the the in the history that I have been collecting and experiencing comic books in 1986 in the most organic way they became the most popular comic company they shifted dynamics from Marvel Marvel will say but we still had the sales that's great they had the buzz um, they didn't have enough books to compete with the now multiple you know, X-Men issues. In 1986, I believe you're going to get, you know, Fallen Angels, which is a another spinoff. It's actually a companion book to the New Mutants from the X-Men. You know, in 1986, in July, you got an issue of New Mutants. You got the New Mutants annual, okay? You were getting X-Men. You were getting X-Factor. Uh, I mean, again, the annuals, the regular editions. I mean, just the X-Men books alone were enough to really just you know always always tilt the numbers in Marvel's favor so I I know because I was there and I was ringing the books up um, Marvel was also celebrating their 25th anniversary and so all of their covers during this this year had a certain um, uh, uh, trade dress and of course it said Marvel 25 25th anniversary on there but they did it with portraits, close-ups of every character, whether it was a member of Alpha Flight, whether it was a member of the Fantastic Four, which would, have, of course, been the thing. But but for several months during this year, they did these portraits, and John Romita had had done a frame of all the characters that surrounded that frame, that framework. And I'm looking at it, and it's Thor and Human Torch and, and the Fantastic Four, Mr. Fantastic and She-Hulk and the Thing, and then you drop down to Power Man and Vision and Scarlet Witch, Hawkeye, all of the members of X-Factor, the original X-Men, the X-Men are at the bottom, Wolverine, Rogue, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus. Then on the, on, the, on the left side, it's more of the Avengers, Cap, 
Captain Marvel, Iron Man, Spider-Man, the Hulk, Doctor Strange. So this, this, you know, you got Marvel celebrating their 25th anniversary and with these spe special portrait covers. Spider-Man had a couple, Captain America, I'm looking at his portrait, Captain America 323, Daredevil 236, uh, I mean, Conan the King, Conan got in on the portrait action. So uh, at this point, this July, this is bustling. And you got the sense that uh, Marvel knew it was coming because they launched a new universe. Okay, we got to talk about the new universe, all right? <laughs> Marvel's new universe. It was coming. We had been warned. We got posters, okay? We got posters. We got we got all manner of um, material to at the store to put up in the windows and to push and, and, and to tell people about the new universe. Now... There's a lot of rumors as to how this all came about. And originally, the new universe was uh, intended to be a uh, distinctly separate world, divorced completely from the Marvel Universe. And it was going to consist of its own set of brand new leading characters and stories. No, None of the Marvel characters totally different world and it was supposed to be kind of like our world more more relatable not not the world of you know the Baxter building and Avengers Mansion and uh, and the Inhumans you know hidden away in Attilan or on the moon now so the original concept as I understood it was that uh, that Jim Shooter had 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 wanted to uh to start over the Marvel Universe. This is what I read. That he wanted to uh, start over the Marvel Universe and he wanted to incorporate like Spider-Man and the Hulk and all those in kind of a blended world that more reflected ours. He was voted down. He was, uh, the, the bosses at the top said, uh, let's not do this. Let's, let's uh, you know, let's, let's go in a different direction. Okay, let's go in a different direction. And, and uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the idea that they would start over with Spider-Man and the Hulk and the Fantastic Four being in a realistic setting uh, got overruled by the Money Men at Marvel. And they said, look, we'll give you a budget and we'll allow you to do this new, ex you know, this new, new experiment. But it does not include our go-tos because th th there are, you know, there are bread and butter. We don't want to upset fandom. We don't want to, we don't want to, uh, you know, compromise what's already working for us. That whole phrase of it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay. So the new universe was set forward and uh, there was an original group of titles, DP7, Justice, Kickers, Inc., Mark Hazard, Merc, Nightmask, Cyforce, Spitfire and the Troubleshooters, and what was clearly supposed to be the showcase was Starbrand. And Starbrand was really their Green Lantern, except kind of a Green Lantern who's really bothered. They were trying to do an Alan Moore kind of take on Green Lantern. That's what I distinctly uh, felt when I would read Starbrand, the early issues. The lead character, Ken Connell, is given this Starbrand, which is like the power ring. And uh, by a crashed visitor from outer space who says, you need to guard this. 
and uh, he struggles to control this power while he's you know trying to function in his lousy job and his lousy relationships. It was really dour, and then this sense of wonder about this power that he really couldn't contain. My personal opinion is, from top to bottom, uh, the universe was poorly designed. As a retailer, Merck, Mark Spector, Merck, is that, is that what it's called? Mark Spector? Mark Spector, Merck, was, um, looked like Sergeant Rock. He looked, Mark Hazard. Mark Hazard, you're like yelling at me going, that's, that's the Moon Knight guy. Mark Hazard, Merck, looked like Sergeant Rock. He literally looked like a Bruce Willis type, which as drawn and depicted looked like a, you know, Sergeant Rock in the modern time. He wore, you know, green camos, camouflage pants, uh, green army tank tops, you know, had all kind of just stuff out of guns and ammo. And so Mark Hazard, Kickers Inc. was like, they were former athletes that were heroes for hire that gained superpowers and they had scarves and vests. And I'm telling you that the designs uh, top to bottom were poor. Justice was like some Billy Idol new wave guy. DP7 just from top to bottom was just looked like a bunch of average Joes that came out of their garages from the cul-de-sac and fixing their, you know, you know, bikes and rigs and trucks to, to, to come together to be, you know, a super team. It was just poorly designed. And I and I'm gonna tell you as somebody who worked retail, they were not heavily sampled. I remember when Starbrand came out and DP7 and Mark Hazard and Justice. And again, this is a really, really interesting time in July of uh in July of 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 uh 1986 because it, it was when this entire you know new universe was launching and and being really somewhat summarily rejected uh, you could tell out the gate this isn't what people wanted out of marvel they didn't want a bunch of guys in regular civilian clothes tank tops uh scarves vests it's just um they didn't people want comics as their escapism and this by reflecting the real world uh, offered very little in the way of being imaginative. The most imaginative of, of it was the Spitfire book, which had a big giant red robot. And that was the book that I was more drawn to. There's a really cool, I think he only did one single issue, but you should check it out. Uh, maybe it's Spitfire 7. I don't have the number off the top of my head. Spitfire by Todd McFarlane. He did a fill-in issue. I think Bob McLeod inked it. It's worth tracking down. It's a fun comic. It's not where Todd is if you really love his Spider-Man stuff, but you can see where he's about to go with his Hulk work. So it's his kind of, uh, Todd is, has left DC. Isn't this ironic? As DC was getting the big iconic uh, creators in, in Marvel's two biggest, most important guys with Frank Miller and John Byrne, their young talent who had been pounding away, giving you issue after issue of Infinity Inc., another kind of young team superhero book that had been going on for years over at DC Comics. Todd McFarlane crosses the street and he does some G.I. Joe fill-ins. He does uh, Spitfire, okay? Um, and, 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 he's, and he's kind of toiling around until they give him Hulk. But we all know that Todd becomes this amazing talent. Uh, I am, am, am going to do in the next year at this certain time, I'm going to do uh, Hawk and Dove. And then I'm going to cross over and get hired in the X office. So it's weird. There's a lot of young talent that was being developed at DC that came over to become the next kind of go-to 
creators at Marvel Comics while they were taking the All-Stars, the Hall of Fame guys, and obviously getting great work out of them. But uh, So that really summed up uh, the summer of, 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 of 86. I mean, it really doesn't get more, uh, you know, then you got Marvel's 25th anniversary and you've got uh, Dark Knight and you've got Watchmen. And, and the one thing about Watchmen and Dark Knight that you need to understand is that uh, apparently, according to John Byrne, and I discuss this really in depth with the Watchmen Dark Knight episode. There's there's a couple in season one. Apparently, not only just John Byrne, but other people at the time who were in the offices. Frank Miller had done his first couple issues of Dark Knight. The pages for Watchmen were coming in. Now, when I was up... I'm going to tell you it's really fun. I'm going to give you a first-hand experience. And, and so many of these guys who live in Manhattan, this is not special to them. But when you fly from Southern California, take that five-and-a-half-hour flight, when you're just starting out, as I was in 87, after I'd been hired, uh, and got, oh, I'd been hired in 86 and gotten you know ready to go and blow up and was ready to attack the industry in 87 and get, get jobs with, with Marvel in D.C. And I did. I, I got my first trip out to New York. They invited me to come to the office for the visit. I stayed with uh, the Kiesels, who were Barbara and Carl Kiesel. They were married at the time. I stayed with them in their place in Connecticut. I then stayed with my exec. I stayed with Jerry Ordway. They were all in Connecticut, so I would take the train in a couple days to see the editorial offices. The gentleman who was editing the Justice League at the time was Andy Helfer, and this is during the period where Kevin McGuire was tearing it up, becoming one of the hottest talents in comic books with his very specific... Uh, depiction of the Justice League and, and, and a real focus on uh, the, the biggest, most concerted focus on real-world expressionistic faces. I mean, expressions. And Kevin said, I would look at a mirror, and I would just look at a mirror. And I'd, I, he was giving all new, uh, an all-new approach. It wasn't like kind of these standard dramatic looking faces or surprised looks on faces, no matter how well they were rendered by by a, a Neil Adams or a Jim Apera or a John Byrne. Kevin McGuire brought this very distinct, they smirked, they looked surprised like a photo, but not a photo because Kevin was looking into a mirror as he was giving all these different expressions. He, he, was, he really brought uh, a, 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 an, ex, an, an extended array of acting kind of skills and and his his characters performed and justice league had had really just taken off with him at the helm with him at the new launch because he did the new justice league number one and when i was up there at andy helfer's office i got to see not only pages you know in the drawer that kevin had drawn but he was in the bullpen area which was very different than the Marvel bullpen area. It was a dedicated office with a few with a few just drawing desks, where the Marvel bullpen was big and open, and the Extreme Studios bullpen was absolutely attempting to uh, imitate the Marvel bullpen. But the DC bullpen was just a, a room with windows and a door, and you know, I mean enclosed. It wasn't an open area. But I saw Kevin Mulgaire actually drawing pages for an upcoming issue of Justice League. In Mike Carlin, who was my editor. Um, who I have openly told you I had a terrible relationship with, and I, I felt he was a, just a, a, a very uh, disturbed from my uh, experience how he treated talent. Um, guy is, uh, I he got in pages from an annual 
that John Byrne and George Perez were jamming on. John Byrne was doing the layouts and drawing all the Superman figures and, and Darkseid and some of the bad guys and then leaving space for George Perez to draw Wonder Woman. This is a really uh, interesting uh, issue of Action Comics that they were doing. It was an anniversary issue if you want to look it up. I don't want to say, again, the number because I didn't expect to be blurting it out. And, 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 and I'm, it's either, is it 600? Is it 700? Don't, don't quote me. John Byrne, George Perez, they worked in this capacity. Superman, Wonder Woman, the pages actually came out of the box. Mike Carlin and his assistant were opening boxes. Pages were coming out, you know, of different issues. There was Jerry Ordway stuff. There was, you know, uh, that had been inked by another inker who they had sent them off to, Mike Macklin. Um, uh, I mean, it was just really awesome. You go to office to office to office and pages are coming out of boxes. Stuff that you're not going to see in press for three to four months and it's right there, 11 by 17. Well, so Frank Miller apparently in early 86 was up in the D.C. offices. He saw that Watchmen stuff come in. He saw the political uh, uh, stance that it was taking with his characters. And he immediately reconverted, retrofitted his ending with Dark Knight 3 and 4 and Superman being a lackey of Ronald Reagan and kind of the tension between Batman and Superman. That is apparently... A, a byproduct of him seeing Watchmen pages and saying, I, this is a cool direction. I can incorporate this and get this out first, which he did. He beat Alan to the punch because Dark Knight 4 comes out between Watchmen 1 and 2. Uh, so, so, again, very exciting time. Iron sharpening iron influences um, up against each other. And, 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 of course, Frank had really ushered in the new era of mature comics in 1979, 80, 81, 82, prior to Swamp Thing, Frank had really brought that new R-rated mature edge with his Daredevil work, which is why it became Marvel's number one title. So the whole idea was that Miller was influencing more, more was influencing Miller, and then Dark Knight clearly pivoted away from the original two issues, which was really more of vigilante justice by an old out of retirement, Bruce Wayne, and then pivoted more to this kind of discussion of superpowers under government control. And I loved it. And and a buddy of mine always says, you're a Watchmen guy, you're a Dark Knight guy. It really tells you who you are. Well, I'm a Dark Knight guy. I always will be. I love Watchmen. I appreciate it. It does not viscerally affect me in the way that Dark Knight does. But, but again, this really carries us through winter, spring, and summer. And again, over at Marvel... They're just playing out their very successful string. I do not want you for one minute to believe that these books were not selling a ton of copies because they were. But the new universe, I'm going to tell you, I was there at retail. It landed with a thud. There's a reason that the new universe ceased uh, publication within a year on most of those titles. If they went a little further, it was just out of stubbornness or trying to make it work. They rebooted Starbrand when John Byrne came back after three years at DC. So there was one book. Starbrand was the one that they kept pushing out. But most of these books had a really short, short shelf life. And as we get into the, the fall of 1986, you know, we're about to enter Batman year one, which is really the basis of the Robert Pattinson, uh, Matthew Reeve Batman movie, because uh, so much Zoe Kravitz Catwoman is, is born in the pages of Batman Year One. And, and uh, 
This is a really big deal at the time. Again, this is closing out my time. It is during this time, uh, my last period working at the at the comic store, that that year one ships. And again, you could just see the palatable just response. The we couldn't believe we had just gotten the future of Batman from Frank Miller. Now he's starting at year one. And again, I did a dedicated podcast on all of this, especially uh, in, in February, March, right prior to the big Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson film, because so much of that DNA is there. And, and the DNA, what, what they would call Batman year one was, was not able to be accessed by other creators. DC had agreed with Frank Miller to kind of fence that off and make that his own unique universe until Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale successfully convinced Marvel to let them swim in those in those waters in that era and they did not Marvel and DC just DC <laughs> they convinced the powers of B at the powers uh that 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 were at uh at at DC to let them have access to that kind of Miller-esque version era of Batman and they did and and they and the long Halloween and dark victory became giant successes and together year one long Halloween dark victory really make the DNA of this you know huge reboot that that, that Warner Brothers uh, undertook but again as you scan over September because we are now in the fall Man of Steel keeps trucking and and Marvel just is doing their thing uh, X-Factor is getting really interesting because Walt Simonson has taken that over. He is segueing from Thor. That's probably the most exciting thing that was happening in 1986. Walt Simonson, one of the great visualists, uh, was coming on to now take over because X-Factor felt a little rudderless. It had a bunch of fill-in artists. I think the direction was really suspect. They didn't. They weren't quite sure exactly how they wanted to go in regards to... Uh, to, to, to the direction of these five original X-Men and then Walt Simonson comes on and it just solidifies immediately. It all comes into focus. During this time also, and, and we did a podcast on the handbooks, Who's Who and Marvel Universe Handbook are really thriving and both of those are, you know, these massive undertakings where you're 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 gonna they're gonna tell you about every character in their catalog and each everybody gets a page or a fraction of a page and people dig it man people just absolutely ate it up they dig it and uh but I look across and Marvel is just staying the course I mean obviously they're they're really trying to impress you with with their new universe stuff they've got some really cool graphic novels Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz had been putting together a Daredevil graphic novel it is actually Marvel uh Marvel graphic novel daredevil and uh it is brilliant frank miller wrote it bill sienkiewicz painted it it's a tremendous vision of kingpin it is really where and they're open about this the uh into the spider-verse kingpin comes from it's where where the, the, the depiction exactly the visual with that tiny egghead and that enormous ginormous looks like a thousand pound body that is based on the depiction of kingpin that bill sinkevich does in this daredevil graphic novel that is a highlight uh in in uh of 1986 the fall of 1986 fall of 1986 also brought the follow-up crossover to crisis on infinite earth dc had had tremendous success with crisis on infinite earth with this giant you know 
talent in George Perez and Marv Wolfman. So John Byrne, as if he didn't have enough to do with Man of Steel and Superman and Action Comics and all the stuff, he he arrived and did their next crossover, and it was called Legends. Legends. And it dealt with all of the really the Kirby fourth world villains. It it, it was heavily focused on Darkseed, Darkseid, um, and all of the fourth world characters. Darkseid is the puppet master behind everything that's going on. It is out of Legends that the Kevin Maguire Justice League spins and so many of the new um, Charlton books that, 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 that they decided to expand afterwards. So so Blue Beetle had already been launched, but again, they, they, you get more out of this Legends crossover. Legends wasn't 12 issues. It was six. It was more contained, but it's brilliant. It's beautifully illustrated. I, I think I may like Legends the most of anything that John Byrne, above Man of Steel, above Superman, above Action Comics. I think Legends... He really wanted to strut, and again, you got some competitive tissue there. Well, George did this giant, acclaimed crossover. Well, what did, what did they do the best at Marvel? They competed. They competed against each other. Well, now they're both under the same house, and John wants to come in and make George feel like, hey, you know, it's not your show anymore. I'm here. I'm doing some some really cool stuff, too. Legends sold really well. It was a big book. It moved the needle. Crossovers matter. All, all manner of different books were getting Legends crossovers. Legion of Superheroes got a Legends, you know, tie-in crossover. Um, Green Lantern books. I mean, everything had a Legends banner on top of it. So DC definitely learned the lesson of what Marvel was doing with Secret Wars 2, which they had learned their lesson from Secret Wars 1, that they could have exploited Secret Wars more than they did. So they did Secret Wars 2 which as a product is more rushed and less respected and not revered in anywhere anywhere near the original Secret Wars, but it had Secret Wars 2 tie-ins on all different books and retailers going, well, Secret Wars sold really well for me. I'm going to order all these Secret Wars 2 tie-ins because if it's half as good as Secret Wars, I'm going to need all these tie-in books. And this was really the, you know, again, we've covered EIC and there is no greater EIC editor-in-chief for Marvel Comics ever in their history than Jim Shooter. Number one reason he got he got royalties to creators. Frank Miller, John Byrne, everybody got royalties. Walt Simonson. He introduced the, you know, you got a percentage of every sale, and that would go on to reward guys like Todd McFarlane, myself, Jim Lee. We would eventually be able to finance our dreams with Image Comics because of the royalty system. Prior to that, it was page rate, and that's it. You talk to some of these guys. You talk to Jim Starlin. You talk to Marv Wolfman. You talk to George Perez before royalties. And they're like, we got paid rate. That's it. You guys, royalties were a big deal. Knowing that you were going to get paid a percentage of the sales of your book a few months down the line. Actually, a lot of months. But once you got, once you did that original nine-month wait, they kicked in. You know, I wouldn't get paid on New Mutants 87 until nine months later. But man, those royalties. Then once the wait is done, you're getting... You know, 87 one month, 88 the next, 89, 90, continue on through. New Next thing you know, you're New Mutants 100. You're selling a million copies. Boom. Okay, that's how it happens. Daredevil, you know, that happened with Frank. Thor, that happened with Walt. Over at DC, it was happening with George. Jim Shooter, other than unleashing these young talents, Frank Miller in his early 20s, 21, 22, to write and draw and completely reconceive of the legend of of Daredevil letting John Byrne do write and draw Fantastic Four, later create Alpha Flight. He he basically settled a dispute between Chris Claremont and John Byrne by allowing John Byrne to go off and do way more 
creative and explosive best-selling work for Marvel while Chris stayed engaged on the X-Men and expanded that empire. You know, from X-Men to New Mutants to Wolverine to then he couldn't write at all. You know, X-Factor, all again, all the special editions, all the annuals, all the miniseries, the, the Wolverine miniseries, the Kitty Wolverine miniseries. I mean, you guys, there there is a ton that came of this. Jim Shooter unleashed so many important talents, but then he, he created the miniseries and the crossover royalties above all else anything that that that, that is done in in service and and helping creators is so valued as a creator so you've got legends kicking off you've got the new universe failing to kind of really click you've got walt simonson really doing some special stuff on x factor but 86 you know by the fall dc is now packaged the dark knight returns Back to Frank again. How do we escape him? But now it's in a hardcover format. Two different hardcover formats with two different dust ja- jackets. This is not a cheap item. This is this is based on Dark Knight because of its Rolling Stone acclaim and its Time Magazine acclaim and all of its critical acclaim had become something that people really had paid notice to. Well, this Dark Knight Re- Returns hardcover it's 200 pages. It's $40. It comes out on October 22nd, 1986. Okay. That is a pricey item for 1986. That is a pricey item in 2022. $40 for this hardcover with dust jacket collecting the Dark Knight. I mean, this is a big deal. I always say like, this is a big deal, but this is a big deal. 40 bucks is a lot of scratch. Stores ordered them, and they sold out. You want to go try and get one of these first editions now? They're worth buku bucks. Um, I, I mean, they 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 were really really um, sought after. Uh, the 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 standard Dark Knight hardcover, not the limited edition. That was going for twenty five bucks. The limited edition forty bucks. Either way, DC was making the bucks. They were making the bucks. So, 1986, you know, I've told you, because of my relationship with, with George Perez, he had, um, he had really emphasized that he couldn't get caught, you know, standing on the side of the road while John and Frank got so much acclaim. And he knew it was coming. And, and, and I mean, he had just done this giant, important crossover. But you know, the culture keeps going. The demands are there. The fans are always hungry. John Byrne and Frank Miller were the next to kind of satiate that at DC. Again, how much DC are we talking about? When do you see me talk so much about DC? DC dominated 1986 because they had these giant talents in, uh, you know, in October of 1986 with Man of Steel wrapped up. DC got another bite at the apple. And that's when Superman. Superman number one, Superman number one by John Byrne launched. Again, like I said, the Man of Steel, number one, two, three, four, five, six, and then boom, what do you know? Now we're giving you Superman. Superman has his own brand new launch, brand new number one that you've got to have. And and so so it's it's multiple bites at the apple. And again, people were, I, I remember taking this book out, putting on the shelves and reading it before. Uh, you know, the store opened and going, oh my gosh, Terry Austin actually inked Superman number one. So you got a little of that X-Men magic, you know, back together again. 
really fun story. Uh, really, just just hit the ground running. But George Perez is waiting in the wings to bring you uh, his Wonder Woman, which is coming. In the meantime, Marvel explodes with Mutant Massacre. And I had told you that they had been kind of semi-running in place a little bit in, in regards to the X-Men. John Romita Jr. was not anybody's idea of a great X-Men artist, not following in the footsteps of John Byrne and Dave Cockrum. And Paul Smith and Frank Miller had done the Wolverine miniseries. And then Art Adams came. And you just wanted everything to look like Art Adams. Well, Mutant Massacre, you've got Rick Leonardi stepping in. You've got Alan Davis stepping in. The, the, the guard is changing. John is exiting. Mark Silvestri is coming in the next few issues. This kind of 1984, uh, 85, 86, two, two and a half years of John Romita Jr. is coming to an end. And fans are thrilled. And the Alan Davis issue, again, for, uh, you know, Chris Claremont knew what he was doing. He saved the big saber-tooth Wolverine face-off for Alan Davis. And so much of the big action-packed issues, Rick Leonardi, he picked his spots. Chris picked his spots. He knew who was going to be doing what, where, when, how, and why. And he made sure that they were doing the stuff that he liked the most. And Mutant Massacre was a really important uh, crossover for the X-Men office that hit that fall. You know, if if the new universe didn't work, well, they, we're going to be there to back it up and to scoop up all that interest and all that money with a legit, big-time X-Men crossover, which they did. And they did so, you know, in the pages of the X-Men during that summer. And then you've got, you know, uniting different, ti- different titles. It was Spitfire and the Troubleshooters, number four, released... October 14th, 1986, that Todd McFarlane drew. I think, ironically, it is his first issue of Hulk that is out that same month. Again, the legend... Um, nope, that, that's yet to come. The legend of Todd McFarlane is uh, is growing. Todd is still on its way. He is not on the Hulk yet. So it's just fun. It's fun going back in time. Legends is coming out. Mutant Massacre is coming out. Um, man, Marvel is just... in uh, DC, they're slugging it out. DC kind of had... The spring and summer to itself, Marvel is crashing the boards with this uh, this crossover that is demanding, you know, so many, so much attention. And uh, I mean, there it is, you know, fall the mutants, fall the mutants. I called it mutant massacre. It's fall the mutants, and uh, dominated the fall of uh, of of. Of the X books, X Factor, Fall of the Mutants. I mean, again, they've got this banner across them. This is a really exciting time. Um, it, it, again, you, you, and 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 Fall of the Mutants is is uh, Silvestri. Silvestri's stepping up. He's arrived. Okay, so we are closing out the year with some really big, eventful mutant books that I think are meant to. That there is a safety net in case, and I think they already kind of saw the writing on the wall they all they 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 really saw that the new universe stuff was was not going to be really what they had hoped and and so what better way than to tie in all the x-men books in in an event and again you got advertising you got posters i mean they really went all out to let you know that we are doing a giant x-men event so so again we've covered a lot of comic books what's going on in the culture at that time in the fall of uh, 
in the fall of 1986, if, if you can freaking believe this, okay, in the fall of, of 1986, uh, the, the, uh, The, 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 the thing that cracked that cracked me up is that a uh, is that a guy from down under an Australian kind of outback guy named Crocodile Dundee stormed the cinemas uh, this just drove everyone crazy like I didn't see it for the first several weeks it literally had to be sold to me like people are like, no, 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 you'll love it, you'll love it, you'll love it. And it was a huge fish out of water story. But um Crocodile Dundee uh just took took America by storm. And and when I say that Top Gun was the number one movie for the year, which I've shared with you guys, Top Gun uh was absolutely the the number one movie for nineteen eighty six, and I've told you it was number one by about sixty million. I mean, it was it was uh, it was dominant. Top Gun, one hundred seventy six million seven hundred eighty one thousand uh, for nineteen eighty six. Number two, and this this movie comes out. I mean, Crocodile Dun Dundee comes out late in the year. It comes out September twenty seventh. It finishes the year at one hundred sixteen million dollars eight hundred forty nine. Karate Kid Part Three is number three. Back to School number four. Aliens number five. Okay. We got a Star Trek movie that landed at number seven that came out in November that year, you know, in, in, in the fall. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was a big July hit, made $70 million. But uh, the big movies, the big movie, Crocodile Dundee, I mean, really Star Trek, The Voyage Home, and The Color Purple were kind of the holiday films that year. But neither of them had the flux, neither of them got to the, the flex, that neither of them got to the 100, Miller, the 100 million standpoint. Um, the only three to break 100 million that year were Karate Kid, Crocodile Dundee, and Top Gun. But Top Gun again, just from May to September, is 60 million above Crocodile Dundee. But Crocodile Dundee dominated, just absolutely dominated the cineplexes, and and I think it goes on to be number one for like maybe five weeks, uh, or, or maybe there, there there's um maybe there's a week in between, um. But man, and uh, I mean, Paul Hogan was a name that nobody had heard of. Linda Kozlowski, nobody heard of. But this, uh, you know, fish out of water where this New York, New York reporter is going over to investigate this legendary kind of guy in the outback. And then by bringing him to New York, again, the that's not a knife. This is a knife. <clears throat> Huge. Huge, giant, brandishing this giant, almost sword-sized blade. Now, um, I was absolutely, in case you were listening, getting carried away. Mutant Massacre and Fall of the Mutants are not the same thing. I'm jumping around years here. Mutant Massacre is the 1986 uh, crossover. I just get so excited about these things. And Mutant Massacre was brutal. And again, it was... It was drawn, again, by these really important, uh, exciting talents. And it united the X-Men. I, I mean, I think there's even an issue of Thor that crosses into or, or, or uh, 
um, yeah, is included in Mutant Massacre. Absolutely. Thor number 373, I believe, is part of it. Um, the the uh, X Factor is drawn into the Mutant Massacre. The, I, I, you know, the, 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 the solidification of the X titles, because there were so many of them, and to give them this kind of broad application to where they're all interconnecting New Mutants, X-Factor, X-Men. I mean, again, that's where Marvel was learning to flex. So while DC is getting critical acclaim with Watchmen and Dark Knight, uh, again, you know, you get these killer Rick Leonardi, Wolverine, Sabretooth issues, Alan Davis, Wolverine, Sabretooth. Walt Simonson is, is flexing on X-Factor. It's a really bright period and it is paving the way for all that is to come and the kind of this new era because Mark Silvestri really is the new fangled guy who knocks down the door and opens up uh, the doors for Jim Lee and everything else to follow. Butch Geis. I mean, another Barry Windsor Smith issue. Uh, the, 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 literally, you go J.R. Jr. does an issue, then Leonardi, then Alan Davis, then Barry Windsor Smith. I mean, um, that fall... And, and again, I just remember it was so much fun because people were really getting into these books. They were excited. I mean, they were excited about these comics. And again, lo and behold, as I told you, how the year really ends is November 6th, Wonder Woman arrives. Wonder Woman number one, George Perez. So in sports, this would be the dream team. Like, I mean, this would be like Michael Jordan and... and uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson playing together on the Olympics. George Perez was the first guy to leave Marvel and come to D.C. in 1980, 83, 84. Frank Miller follows, follows does his Ronin miniseries, this, this, this really kind of cyberpunk, uh, kind of not European novel, European album approach. And, 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 and that had a medium response. It was not really what people wanted out of Frank, but God bless him, he, gave, he did what he wanted to do, not what he thought people wanted him to do. That was kind of the one for him. The one for us was Dark Knight when he agreed. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my take on Batman. I'll show you what that looks like. And not only that, but I'll give you year one. And then you got John Byrne coming from Man of Steel. They've already got George. George confided in me in that trip that I've discussed with you where we, myself, Hank Canals, who was... Uh, executive editor at DC for the last decade. We picked George up. We catered him. We took him to restaurants. We manned his table. Um, he was just so generous with us. It was in that time that he said, well, I, 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 was, I thought I was going to get a rest after Crisis on Infinite Earths and the history of the DC Universe, which he snuck that in too. He's like, but I've got I've to jump right into Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman features some amazing, beautiful, brilliant illustrations by George. I'm not a big, like, I don't, like, um, hold that work in, 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 a, in a special kind of esteem over so much of everything else that George did. Huge George fan, but he was smart. He knew, like, and he said, I have to do one of the big three with Frank on Batman, John on Superman. I have to contribute. I have to do one of the big three. Now, maybe he could have done Green Lantern. That would have been interesting. I really like George's Green Lantern. That's not to sell Wonder Woman short. It came out. It was a big seller. It landed. It really is fitting November 1986. The, the, the final of this big trio of remakes for DC's icons, Superman with Byrne, Batman by Miller, and now Wonder Woman by George Perez. And you guys, these were superstar artists at Marvel. And now in 1986, as a retailer, as a fan, 
I am racking and marketing and supporting and promoting their work at DC Comics, the competition. But you've seen Alan Davis, Rick Leonardi, Celestri's coming. New names are cropping up. Todd McFarlane. Uh, the new universe was a wipeout. It it, it, it it was literally a failure to launch. I mean, it was it's one of the rare kind of uh, complete wipeouts on, on Shooter's record. Uh, you know, when you have... Frank Miller's Daredevil run and, and Walt Simonson's Thor run and Secret Wars and Royalties to Creators and John Byrne's X-Men and Cockrum's X-Men and Paul Smith's X-Men and so many others. All the licensing success. ROM, Micronauts, uh, uh, just so many of the different successes getting the Indiana Jones license. I mean, Shooter is just so ridiculously accomplished in all that he did in regards to moving the needle, transforming comics. The graphic novels... Marvel's graphic novel program program was put out by him. Death of Captain Marvel, the New Mutants, launched as a graphic novel. Shooter was an amazing force, but New Universe was not. And 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 there's no no sugarcoating it. It, it was it was not a success in any way whatsoever. But 1986 again, Crocodile Dundee just kind of played out the string. That was really the movie everybody was digging, and. Uh, that was the way that the the culture was completely just going crazy for that stuff. In the comic world, December comes around. December's closing it down, closing the year down. And, I mean, what more does DC have to do? They, they've relaunched Superman. The creator's been on national television. Covers on Time magazine are in the works. Wonder Woman gets national attention being relaunched. And, uh... Frank Miller breaks all manner of records and acclaim and, 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 and gets Batman on top again. I mean, DC, it was the year that the guard changed, that we all saw what was possible. And uh, again, what do we got over on the X-Men? We've got a, another, um, you know, non-John Romita Jr., Alan Davis. I mean, Romita Jr. really kind of segued off a run that was not at the time in the time of the time if you were there of the time you knew this whenever I talk about this other pros they won't identify themselves but they contact me and they go yeah that wasn't my you know I was I was uh, I fretted over that run it wasn't kind of what I had expected the teenagers of that time will tell you the truth I'll tell you what DC does I'll tell you what DC does I'm sorry DC does the big icon thing what Marvel does to finish the year, December of 1986, they're, they're showing even more of their flex. I think, okay, you want to take our icons? You want to take our big dogs? You want to get Magic Larry and MJ of comics together? Great. We're going to show you that we have characters that people love and, and adore and they don't necessarily need the all-star treatment. Sure enough, as I said, coming out of Legends, Captain Adam number one uh, uh, shines. Uh, you know, by this time we're ending... Batman Year One is has begun. We're in the second chapter of this as we end, but what Marvel's doing, first there's Fantastic Four X-Men, and it's by John Bogdanov, a relatively new guy, inked by Terry Austin. This sold really well. They, 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 they shipped uh, issues two and three in the same month in December. I mean, so they were really doubling down, and then Mark Silvestri is doing X-Men Avengers. Again, uh, you know, 
just spinning off and using that mutant flex. So so at that point, you got X-Men, you got New Mutants, you got uh, a New Mutants miniseries called Fallen Angels, which is a further investigation of the Young Mutants. So you got New Mutants, Fallen Angels, X-Men, X-Factor. Now you got X-Men Avengers, you got X-Men Fantastic Four. So, so Marvel is now just going, we can flex, and I'm going to tell you those were top books. X-Men Avengers, X-Men Fantastic Four were big sellers. So now is the first time that Marvel looks and goes, we got, we got five X-Men books, maybe more, you know, in one month, and we're dominating. So you can have George on Wonder Woman. You can have Frank Miller on Batman. You can have John Byrne on, on Man of Steel. But we are, are going to show that we have characters, Wolverine, Magneto, Rogue, Storm. They are beloved. And if we put them and expand them, we're going to take even more sales. And that is, again, the, where this lesson is being maxed out. So, ultimately, you know, 1986 was dominated really by two movies. Only three made $100 million. Again, Karate Kid 3. Uh, you've got, and forgive me, I probably read that wrong. It's not Karate Kid 3. It's Karate Kid 2. Karate Kid 2, Top Gun, and Crocodile Dundee. All uh, deliver huge box office. Yes, Karate Kid 2. Crocodile Dundee, Top Gun, all break the $100 million mark. Again, something like Ferris Bueller, which was legitimately a huge, huge movie, a comedy. For a comedy, I think at that time, at that time, I mean, I know Beverly Hills Cop was super popular, but... Eddie Murphy had been really riding from 84 to 85, this giant crest of popularity from, from Saturday Night Live to Trading Places to 48 Hours to then Beverly Hills Cop. Matthew Broderick was an unknown. John Hughes' brand was just beginning. but uh, and, and, and that John Hughes' brand that had been flexing with 16 Candles and Breakfast Club was really highly identified with Molly Ringwald, breaks out with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Breaks out because now it's like, well, John Hughes is having success outside of Molly Ringwald. Uh, so so Ferris Bueller, big giant hit, dominated. On television, I had read you already, it's the same old culprits. It's those NBC, it's Family Ties, it's Cosby Show, it's Cheers now. Um, the, these are the big shows. But again, you know, really fun going down memory lane. Looking at the music, again, Bon Jovi, Madonna, Blasted, Own the Charts. They were the big pop hits, the the, the, the acts that were selling out the arenas. And, uh, you know, what pivots from there is everything that kind of comes out in 87 from D.C. is really, especially in the early going, pivoting off of what was set up in Legends. Legends was really a place setter for where they wanted you to be. The Justice League book with the Kevin Maguire stuff that I was talking about, that was put in motion through legends, a new Justice League is, is formed at the end of that, and 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 that is the Justice League that you're going to get for the next couple of years, and Justice League becomes a top seller for DC, and that is all out of the events of the big John Byrne crossover book, where again he's competing and trying to show George Perez I can do a giant crossover, because he didn't do one, he didn't do a giant crossover for Marvel, but boy he gets to DC for th first thing he does, I'll do one of those, I'll compete. So 1986, really wild, huge flex. You had, again, the biggest legends in comic books who had been the go-to guys 
for Marvel and DC for a decade were now all under one roof. Uh, Frank and George had not really been under the one roof. Frank had done a couple issues to Daredevil by the time DC left Marvel to go to DC, where he became their most important guy. Drew tons of covers. Drew Justice League and Titans monthly. You know, did backup stories in The Flash. Like I said, did, did so many covers. The Legion of Superheroes, Justice League, Dial H for Hero, The Flash, Green Lantern. George became one of their most prolific cover artists, and everybody at that time remembers that work. So now, Frank at his apex is sharing, you know, a roof, a label with George coming off the biggest hit of his career in Christ on Infinite Earths and the launch and the idea that Wonder Woman was going to be this third piece of these triple threat icons. And then, of course, you got the John Byrne of it all, which I've covered ad nauseum. 1986, a year not to be messed with. It shifted power. Um, it, it, it had Marvel really go into two different modes. That new universe mode, which was Wipeout City. Nobody wants to see like plainclothes superheroes. They just don't. Um, and I, I still don't think they do. And you go, but, but, but Walking Dead is plainclothes. Walking Dead isn't heroes. Walking Dead is a sci-fi apocalyptic, you know, Western horror. It, it, it fits so many different genres and it's a soap opera. Um, but it's not plainclothes superheroes. And, uh, I mean, even the Radiant Black series that launched this last year from Image Comics in the last year from Kyle Higgins is, you know, it reflects kind of a Power Rangers dynamic. It, it's, it's, it's powers, it's costumes, it's gear, it's armor. Again, nobody wants that plain cold stuff. They really don't. And, and, and New Universe showed it. It showed it, and it was a giant flame out. But because of the success of the X-Men, and, and look, here's the deal. Here's, here's the final wrap-up. The, the Jim Shooter really showed his weakness after a tremendous, really strong, you know, almost six-year run there. And it sets the door for him to exit in the next year. Uh, I, th- I think I think that, the, you know, he had kind of lost touch. The talent was leaving him. The new ideas weren't clicking. And so what 1986 does is it really sets up his exit uh, from 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 the business, and Jim Shooter is editor in chief when Young Robbie Liefeld does and gets his first work printed in the Marvel Universe uh, handbook, the Book of the Dead. When I did all of the Zodiac entries, and that's a really interesting time to me. Again, one guy from Marvel Comics said you didn't work through Shooter, and I said yes, I did. I've been under Shooter, Tom DeFalco. There was the five editor period that lasted a year. Five different editors: Bobby Chase, Mark Grunewald. Uh, 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 Bob Harris, and I forget the other two, they shared the reins. Then they gave it to Bob, Bob Harris. So he's the fourth. Then Joe Quesada, six. Axel Alonso, oh crap, is it eight? Wow. Okay, I've been through a lot of editor-in-chiefs. And when I mean been through, I've just had, I've been under their tenure. It may have only been un, just a couple months under Jim Shooter, but I was in his administration. I was, I was working for his administration. So what happened in 86 made it, I think, easier to show Jim the door uh, in the year following. And, uh, you know, look, everything has consequences. Opened up today. President of Warner Brothers Films, the guy who was greenlighting all the films, he's, he's done. He's fired. He's let go. 
remove, step down, whatever word the trades use, not my verbiage, their verbiage. Uh, you know, that, 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 that tenure is, is over and that's, it happens all the time. You know, you get, you get a window to make your mark and Jim Shooter made a spectacular mark. It's just 1986 is not the bright, smart, bright spot, (laughs) the bright spot on his resume. So yeah, 86 was a barn burner, great music, great television, really good films, uh, Leg, I mean, Top Gun is the fact that it went 36 years without a sequel and it's still beloved. And so many of those elements that they recreate for us in Top Gun 2 is them just really accentuating what we already loved about the first movie, which again leads me to think that maybe that first movie is perfect. And and, and by giving you more of a bar scene and more aerial farts fights, aerial farts too, aerial farts, aerial fights and more of the beach kind of competition instead of volleyball, the football, defense versus offense. I mean, more motorcycles. I mean, it really is kind of a a, a template for for stuff that we really like seeing. And also, we're, we're looking at beautiful people. When people go, what, do you, what, what, what's both, what unites both Top Guns? Both movies are beautiful people save America. Iceman, Val Kilmer, and that beautiful jaw, face, Tom, and that smoldering those smoldering eyes and brilliant cheekbones the two of those guys and all those beautiful pilots taking down the bad guys and this time around it's hangman it's coyote you know it's phoenix it's maverick more beautiful people saving america yeah 86 uh was a barn burner you're gonna really enjoy our next year as we delve into the next year find out the next time we get together but uh that We'll put, uh, we'll put a bow on 1986. Call it a day, and uh, and really reflect on all that happened and everything that was set in motion. Batman changed forever. Watchmen changed comics forever. Uh, Superman got a brand new shiny coat of paint. Got television co- coverage, and and everybody, including Gal Gadot, Linda Carter. Uh, view George's Wonder Woman as really a, a reset for the character that has been felt through all of the animation and cinema that has followed. So, I mean, really important bodies of work. Marvel flexes. Marvel gives you, realizes the power of those damn mutants, how potent they are and how much they can exploit them and how much we will consume them. What an incredible time capsule. Thank you for jamming with me on 1986. I, I, I had fun. I hope you had fun. And, uh, and, and the next one coming up is, is going gonna, is gonna to tickle you. I, I think it's a doozy. And one last major thought on 1986 is 1986 was awesome. Tom Cruise became a star. The biggest stars at Marvel uh, combined to do humongous, giant achievements over at DC Comics. And uh, the world met Paul Hogan and Crocodile Dundee and his big, giant Wolverine blade. Hey, 1986 was fun. The next year is going to be even more, more, I think even more explosive for the culture. But you know, at the end of every episode, we talk about the great reviews and the comments that you leave on the platforms that this podcast is available on. And those reviews, those comments, uh, they mean the world to us. They help us stand out on the platform. They, uh, they give us an edge and I appreciate it so much, so much so that I read them at the end of every story. 
<laughs> every episode, uh, I read your beautiful. This this one's a story. You'll you'll see why I said story because I'm about to read a wonderful comment that was left for us by Marsupial Butt Effer eight sixty one. Does it get better than that? I think this guy just left it so that I would read that name. All right, and I did. <laughs> It says the creator who has created creators. Okay. He gave us five stars. He's very generous. Uh, this, is, this is a long one. Get ready. This says a big one, but a very inspired one. Not only do I have a blast and learn a ton, but this podcast is deeply special to me. Here's why I grew up with absolutely one thing in mind to become a professional comic book artist. I did nothing but draw. I idolized Rob Liefeld and company and wanted nothing more than to become a comic book artist who created and owned his own characters, and told his own stories. My senior year of high school, I got a scholarship to the School of the Visual Arts, Manhattan. My dream was on its way, largely due to the influence and the inspiration from the 90s Marvel and Image comic books. But on a whim, I applied to NYU's acting and writing program with a script adapted from a Spider-Man story I wrote. I got in, started doing stand-up, and long story short, 10 years later, I am a touring comedian. You may have seen me on Comedy Central. The point... Three years ago, for the first time, I listened to Rob's Observations, and I have been hooked, all in caps, hooked, every morning since, every morning since starts with me catching up on older episodes and new ones while I draw consistently for the first time in years. Rob describes comics from his youth that I am riveted to hear about for the very first time and describes them in detail so vivid you feel like you can picture them, though you'll certainly be moved to look up the artists and the comics as you listen. Rob is an exceptional storyteller and he is so forthcoming, often vulnerable and enthralling that you feel like you're listening to a documentary. Also, no one has seen all the successes and challenges the business has to offer as Rob has. Collaborating with Tom Cruise, being sued by your best friends. Come on! The podcast has scored most of my drawing sessions for the past month. Thanks to it, I've completed the first seven pages in my first comic book. Almost every line Scored by the voice of the incredibly passionate, inspiring, enthusiastic energy of one of comics' most singular and exciting voices. Rob, doing the podcast is a service both to the fans of the industry, new and longtime fans. It's really such a reliable source for contemporary comic book culture, trends, news, and history, like only Rob could do. For instance, for instance, the history lessons, the personal anecdotes, and the love of the craft that he has talking about one of the recently departed legends, like Neil Adams or George Perez. It's beautiful. It's exclusive. This show is a must for comic book fans and a great jumping on point for incoming readers. I look forward to more from Rob's observations and to putting the project it helped me create in a few months. Mr. Nick Callis. Mr. Nick Callis is how he signs it. It is posted under, I got to say it again, marsupial butt effer 861. Hey, that is the nicest interview. Uh, that's the nicest review anybody's ever left for me. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Um, for leaving that, I, I am so thrilled that you listen, that you're inspired, that you can learn something. You guys, I do this show for you. I kid you not. I, I feel an obligation, uh, especially given that I have been, you know, like I've said on the show, I have discovered that I just know stuff that I took for granted that people don't know. So sharing it with you um, imparts that history. I always bring the receipts. I read the reviews. Uh, I mean, I read the interviews. I put the dates I, I hope you guys, I, I hope, hopefully I help you guide you towards real um, sourced information. And I thank you so much, guys, for the fact that you appreciate it to leave me um, reviews like that one. Thank you again. You guys know that when you lead a re read, leave, make, write, post a review, I'm going to read it. And I appreciate it. 
You guys know I am all over social media. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. The full name, Blue Check, tells you it's really me, not an imposter. On Instagram, at Rob Liefeld, Blue Check. Again, it's really me, not an imposter. I love reading your comments, your um, your messages, uh, your DMs, your our back and forths on Twitter, the mentions. Thank you so much for always reaching out and talking to me. I love um, all the back and forth, all of the dialogue. Honestly, real-time dialogue that we are able to have all across all these platforms on Mom Facebook. This page has a dedicated page on Facebook, Observations with Rob Liefeld. I said that as I bit my lip. Observations with Rob Liefeld is on Facebook. Um, check that page out. Like it. Uh, leave, leave a comment. I'll find you. I'll, 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 I'll respond. I have a group called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. That is a group that I moderate. We have a great bunch of fans. Uh, we're always talking about uh, mostly of the stuff that, that, that revolves around my, my career. Um, there are all, all sorts of other groups that I'm involved with. Sci-fi groups, Planet of the Apes, Logan's Run, Star Wars, Fantasy. I'm all over Facebook. I actually, the groups are what keep me engaged. Check me out. Find me. I'm all over social media. This is the time of the show where we wish each other good health, good mental health, good spiritual health, good emotional health, and good physical health. But that doesn't mean you can't have a great juicy bag of Doritos Cool Ranch, uh, uh, whatever is your 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 you know your pleasure. Uh, Cheetos, chocolate bars, p- peanut butter cups, uh, Hershey's chocolate Slurpees. It's summer. Get a Slurpee. God, get a Slurpee. Okay, uh, and, and 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 please, you know, while you're sl- slipping that blue cherry Slurpee, uh, Slurpee, think of Mr. Rob Liefeld because I would like a blue cherry Slurpee as well. Okay, uh, or blue raspberry, whatever these crazy. They've got Mountain Dew now. They got all sorts of great. The bottom line is have fun, take care of yourself, relax, watch great TV, read a great comic, read a great book, go go see a great movie like Top Gun 2. Holy crap, it's so good. Get out there, enjoy yourself. Summer is upon us. Um, I, I wish you all the best. I hope that you are going to take care of yourself and you're going to be well. Please circle back around and find me because I'm going to be here and we will talk again real soon.